This is Dalio's Principles, a philosophical examination. The unofficial podcast companion for Ray Dalio's book, Principles. This podcast will deeply explore the book and principles. The podcast is hosted by Micah Bays and John Sextro. Micah has a PhD in philosophy and has taught numerous college philosophy courses, including The Meaning of Life, Ethics, and Reason and Argument. John shares his perspective from years of experience trying to live out Ray's principles in his life and work. I'm Micah Bays. And I'm John Sextro. And we are back with Chapter 4 of Principles. And uh, the title of this chapter is My Road of Trials. And this, the time span that uh, Dalio covers in this chapter, Micah, is from 1983 to 1994. Um, I, was, I was in grade school in the 80s and graduated from high school in 91. What were you doing? See, uh, in 83, I was two. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and uh, 94, I just started middle school. So we like to uh, sort of place ourselves when we can. Is there's there's things that happened in Dalio's life that relate to us. So think about when uh, as you as you're reading along as well. Think about where you were uh, in your life then, if you were around. Some of you are probably very young. Uh, so Ray Ray starts off talking about um, the company again, of course, and and Bridgewater and what he was doing with computers there, and just sort of summarizing real quickly the rest of the chapter. He talks about also resurrecting Bridgewater as a force in the market and how he goes about doing that his uh, his work to uh, start working uh, behind what he calls the closed door of China. We'll come back to that for some more information, his family and his extended family, which also includes a lot of his employees, uh, some big twists and turns that happen in the economy and the markets, uh, the foothold for Bridgewater, his next foothold for Bridgewater, more about the Holy Grail of investing, which we're really not going to cover much in this episode, Micah, just because we've talked about it before. And then uh, sort of wrapping up, which is a, really, I think, a critical part of the chapter is system, systematizing and learning from mistakes. And then what Ray calls my intractable people problem. So let's go back up to the top of the chapter. And we're starting off around this, this stuff where Ray's talking about computers, which are near and dear to our hearts because we work in the computer industry. But what is it that, that Ray's doing here? He, he's, he's starting to use computers in a, in a fundamental way to systematize some of the, the modeling. And we've, we've seen him do that in earlier chapters with some of the spreadsheets that they were working on in the, in the office until late at night and running models overnight and seeing what happens. But he has this theory here that if there was a big enough computer with enough data and perfect enough data, that it could tell us like sort of everything about all the outcomes in the world. What do you, how does that sit with, with your philosophy background? Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's interesting just that he says, you know, yeah, if we had this advanced computer and we had all the facts, then the future, as he put it, could be perfectly foretold. Um, and I started thinking back to some of my, the classes I took on free will and determinism and, um, you know, when he says it could be perf be perfectly foretold, it sounds like the world is determined, right? Including human behavior. Um, and I think for a lot of people, if they hear that, they're going to think, well, does that mean then that, you know, we don't have free will, right? If, if 
he could for perfectly foretell what I'm going to do, right? Because I'm a part of the world. Uh, if he just had enough facts and the right algorithms, seems like my decisions are already determined by the current state of affairs. Um, yeah, that starts to get like some pretty deep into some pretty deep territory there, philosophy wise, because you start to think like like you're saying do I even really have any free will or is like all of these things, these factors surrounding me affecting me so much that it, these things are predictable. Right. Um, yeah. And certainly one, like one crucial, uh, aspect or related, uh, issue is the notion of like moral responsibility. Uh, if the world is determined. If my own actions are determined, then you might think that I shouldn't be morally responsible or my actions. So with respect to free will and determinism, there are kind of two main camps. The first one is what's called incompatibilism. Uh, hmm. And what does that mean? So that means that uh, determinism is incompatible with free will. Okay. If the world really is determined, uh, if your actions really are determined by, you know, the current state of affairs, then you don't have free will. And if you don't have free will, then you also don't have moral responsibility. And those, so those things are sort of incompatible with one another. Right. And so, uh, as you might guess, the opposite view of this is what's called compatibilism. Uh huh. Uh-huh. I didn't see that coming. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so compatibilism is going to say, no, actually free will is compatible with determinism. Even if all of the world's, events are determined, including your own actions, you still have free will. Um, and interestingly, some incompa- some compatibilists would argue that determinism is necessary for free will, or you might say necessary for moral responsibility. Um, and the reason for this is that, well, look, um, a lot of times when we think about, you know, you being morally responsible for something, we think it's because it was you who caused it. And so they're going to say, if the world's determined, it was your nature, right? Your desires and so on that caused you to perform the action that you did. And so since that's something you might say out of your nature, out of your desires that caused the action, you're responsible for it. You freely chose to do it because it was your own nature. And they're going to argue against incompatibilists and say, well, look, would we really want randomness um, to be involved in our decisions, right? Um, If the world isn't determined, then presumably things happen randomly. And so why would we want to hold someone responsible for an action which just happened randomly and it wasn't caused by their nature? caused by their desires and so on. Um, Of course, incompatibilists, and in particular what's called libertarians, people who think the world is not determined, but... um, Not determined and we all have free will. Free will, right? Yes. Um, They would have some responses to that. Um, We won't go into that here. Um, But... Anyways, just kind of an interesting thing. I, I'm just curious, you know, where uh, Ray would fall 
in all of this, right? Even though he's a determinist, he could still think that we have free will, right? It's going to come down to what's true, right? Is free will compatible with determinism or not? That's you know, up for debate. That's really interesting. It's deep. Uh, it makes my, a lot of these philosophy things make my brain sort of swim because I'm like, wow, I never thought about it at such a, a broad scale or grand scale. And, and are the, am I an incompatibilist or a, a compatible compatibilist? Because I, I don't know. I think that, I think that there's, there are some things that are sort of predictable maybe uh, be, at a, at a certain scale of things. Um, could you predict what my, what I will do from a, if I have free will, assume I'm assuming I have free will. I'm, I'm whole, I'm holding it in my mind that I, I do have some free will, but now I'm sort of left questioning that. Like, am I really a product? Are my decisions a product of other things that are, that are going on around me that are really, uh, predictable, knowable, um, that someone can for tell them to a certain extent with the computers. So or with, and with enough data and enough AI number crunching, could somebody predict what I would, what I would do. Right. Yeah. Sometimes, right. It's easy to think, Oh, I'm making decisions. I'm going to go to work today or I'm going to go, you know, uh, watch a baseball game and you feel like, Oh yeah, I really could have chosen otherwise, but maybe you couldn't have, um, I don't know. Yeah. It, it, it leaves us thinking. And so what, where do you think that that takes us in terms of um, this? You, you have something in here about this rejection of non-deterministic quantum theory. What is that? That sounds really. Well, this is definitely above exciting. my pay grade here okay. now. Um, I am no physicist, uh, but there is the thought in physics as far as I understand it, which is admittedly very little. Um, at at the quantum level, which is like extremely small, at the extremely small level, uh, right below atoms and all of that. Again, I'm probably speaking erroneously sure. here. Quantum, um, so quantum. If if you're listening to this and you know the stuff better, just send us an email and correct me, please. Yeah. Um, but there's an idea that at the quantum level, at the really smallest levels of you know, I guess physics there's actually is a randomness that goes on. Um, and so the world might not be deterministic. Now, I guess there's the debate about whether a quantum, if quantum theory is true, um, whether it's deterministic or not. A lot of people assume that now nah, it's just random um, or it, it implies randomness at the smallest level. Some people think no quantum theory is compatible with determinism, but anyway, so, uh, just made me wonder if, you know, what he thinks about quantum theory and. Yeah, definitely. And I think this all starts to, this all starts to feed into sort of the, the process that Dalio's talking about in this chapter regarding like, so predicting one, but then also decision-making, which is sort of, I guess, maybe predicting because you're saying that you're going to use some data that you that you know or that you've calculated to make make a decision and whether or not that's that's done with a uh, perfect data and these you know quant giant I almost said quantum computers because you were talking about quantum <laughs> physics but these this giant AI and and huge compute power to come up with decisions but the important thing is like how are you thinking about things and what's your what's your uh, what he calls your mental model or your mental map 
um, about trying to make deci- trying to make decisions. And and we've seen in <clears throat> we've seen in the previous chapters, Micah, that there's a there's Dalio's sort of building up to this discussion about how to make these decisions, and he starts to give us tips and ideas about how to do them. Um, and he's in, and now he's starting to talk about applying those in his case here to to like the markets and saying, you know, how do I how do I look at historical data? How do I design what I'm doing and go from there? Right. Yeah. Um, so first off, question or first off, John, I've got a question for you. Of course. Do you know anything about agile software? Oh yeah. <laughs> Thisagilelife.com. Check it out. <laughs> All right. An inside joke for some of you. Um, so, you know, just with, uh, Ray talking about writing down his decision criteria, it made me think about, you know, just, you know, we do, we develop in an agile way here. Um, and one of the things that we do for people who don't know, uh, we have retrospectives where we meet with whatever product team we're on, uh, that's developing software and we'll meet every so often could be every week, every couple weeks. Um, and we just talk about our processes and we try and figure out, you know, is there a way that we could improve our team processes to be more efficient and make better, higher quality software and so on. Um, but what I find is that when I get into those retrospectives, you know, after a week or two and we start talking about, Hey, well, what went on the last week or two? My mind's kind of a blank slate. It's just empty. I'm like, I, I don't know. What did we do? Um, and so I've started thinking about, it would, seems like it might be helpful for me if I were to maybe at the end of each day write down, hey, you know, here's some things that went well. Here's some things that didn't go well. Uh, here's some things that maybe I think could be improved by doing X. And if I you know, kind of kept a journal, I guess, then when I go to the retrospective, I could have you know, some more information for that retrospective and maybe those would be more effective. And it seems just that's kind of like what he's doing with his decision criteria where he's writing those down. Right, absolutely. And and I think from a from a, a financial markets perspective, it's it's a little bit easier because all of that data is like really uh it's really crisp. It's it's um easily identifiable to a certain extent. It's also finite. I mean, your data is probably also finite, but it's a little harder to categorize. Uh, and and classify that data. So yes, I mean I think you're right. I think you can do that. Um, and I I, th- I think it's I think that's a thing that we should all sort of maybe do in our lives is as we're as we're moving through our days, writing down and maybe journaling. You know, sort of keeping a log of what were the important things that I came across because that's our that's our individual data about how we're doing. And as we as we look back and retrospect ourselves on a regular basis or with our work groups or teams that we work with, we can use some of that data to help us um, think about how we might do things better. One of the, one of the parts that he, that Dalio moves into here then Mike is, is about arguing. And <clears throat> we sort, we sort of talked about arguing a little bit before, but I think it's what, what he's really getting at is that it's, it's not so much about like the conclusions that it's, it's more about like what, what do you learn from having the discussion and what, what do you find out is sort of true? Um, and what can you test objectively? Because if you can't, and I think that's sort of the crux maybe of this point about arguing 
is that if you if you can't test for it in a repeatable way, that it's just an opinion, maybe. Right. Um, he, you know, he he would go back and come up with these as as they're working on the algorithms. They'd run 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 old data through them to sort of test them objectively and say, okay, this model seems to be working because we can take an event from the past where we know what the outcome was, run our data through it, and see if the if, see if the outcome that our that our model predicts is actually what occurred. Right. And so you can learn from that. Yeah, and yeah, it seems like that's a better little, better way than just going by your hunches. Right. Uh, it seems like you know these stocks will do better and seems like these stocks will do worse so we'll invest in these and you know not invest in those but you know what do you do with that hunch right when the data comes out once you observe the stocks over time and you see well this one actually did better and this one did worse all you had was a hunch how would you correct your hunch right and this won't work in a, this obviously works in this very narrow field of financial markets and data that go along with it because because you have these very, very much, um, they're, they're very, uh, they're very objectively focused. Where you can have, there's an increase or there's a decrease, and I mean, you can tell very objectively if it, if it succeeded or failed. And in life, not everything is is as clear. And even if I had data, like over my the entire course of my life, how would I evaluate if things would have been different or not have been different or you know, would my, what, I guess the only thing I could really do and know maybe is that, um, I had, I had created a model that when I plugged in all of my data from my life, that it, it, it got the same result as, as my life actually did. So like you said, with, a with, a looking forward data, you're sort of going on a hunch and then you're, you're casting the dice at that point and saying, I'm, we're going to go with this and see how it works out. But it, we're going to have to, we'll have to live life to find out how it works, how it works out ultimately. Well, so then there's this, <clears throat> there's oh, so this. you want a philosophy quote here? Oh yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so Soren Kierkegaard, uh, one of some consider him the founder of existentialism. Uh, he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, I think, um, life can only be understood backwards, but it has to be lived forwards. Hmm. That's a good one. That's yeah. that's what we're seeing happen here. Mm-hmm. We we have to live it forward, but we can understand it looking looking back. So the Ray Ray runs into uh, I think an interesting thing here. Uh, Radio Shack has this this chess game that has a, a computer AI in it that he finds and buys, and he starts to sort of obsessively play it. It sounds like from the way he talks about it in the book. And then he's like, okay, let's buy these and give them to everybody that that uses our product and see if that how how easy it is for them to beat the chess game because it's not, it's super hard. You know, the computer is so much better at playing chess than most people could be. Um, and he uses that sort of as a demonstration of our computer modeling is like this chess game. You know, we can beat you. Our computer can predict and beat, beat you just like this chess game can. Yeah. seemed like a pretty good marketing strategy. To I me. agree. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. All right. So we're going to jump ahead in the book to the, or to the, in this chapter anyway, to where, uh, Dalio starts to explore business opportunities in China, which is a sort of an interesting thing to do because of course he likes to do the interesting things. You know, this is certainly not a safe venture, but it's going to be interesting. And uh, he does some firsts, you know, it's like the first U S based private equity firm in China. 
Um, and so a, a lot of firsts happen and this is, this is that interesting living that interesting life. But, uh, it, of course it, we, we learn later that it ends up being that, uh, they just couldn't overcome a lot of the, the closed door things about China. Uh, but there's some other interesting things that they, they run into. So Ray and his family end up spending a lot of time in China and they make a pretty important decision in their, in their family where they're going to decide to leave is I think it's his oldest son uh, there. He's going to, he's going to continue his education in China. Right. Yeah. At, so at, a, at the young age of 11. 11. Yeah. You know, so one, I can't imagine that, you know, just, I'm a father of three. Now, none of them are, none of my children are 11 yet, but I think I can guesstimate what it's like to have an 11 year old. And I can't imagine letting them live overseas for a year. Um, one, I just think I would really miss out on all the experiences I would have with them during that year. Right. So just imagine them not getting to interact with them very much for you know almost a year. Um, but in this case, it's not just the missing out on the time with them, but it's, you know, where they're at. So Ray mentions the standard of living was, uh, much lower in China at the time. And so a couple of examples, he said, you know, the, can we talk about the age for a second? The oh, thing? yeah. You're, so all of your kids are younger than 11? Yeah. Okay. My oldest is about to turn six tomorrow, actually. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, all of my kids are 11 or older. My oldest is going to be 20 soon. And uh, I, I sort of sort of feel like, um, and maybe this is because there's there's a little bit of explorer in me, but I never had an opportunity as a child myself to really spend a significant amount of time away from my parents. And I think that of course that impacted who I am, right? I never wanted to though either. And I wonder if, if um, I see movies and I, I think specifically of like the, um, the Harry Potter series of books and the movies where those children spend a significant amount of time away from their families. And I, in, in hindsight, I think about that and, and wonder, wow, that might've been, like if I would have been able to spend some time away from my family and have these different experiences, what, how would I be different? And yeah, maybe my parents would have missed me and maybe I would have missed them, but you know, would those have been like really awesome experiences that I could have had? And while you might miss your children, if you expose them to one of these sort of experiences, is, would that be a really awesome experience that they could have had? Right. Yeah. I mean, they certainly might gain more than they did from just than they would from just being home. Um, so yeah, how would it affect their life trajectory? Mm -hmm. You know, what kind of skills and capacities and interests might they gain that they wouldn't otherwise? And, and I so, think, I think I had a, I think I probably had a similar emotion too that you, I think you have because you're about to get into this, but it's that, you know, um, I'm sort of putting my child out into this world and, uh, are they going to be okay? You know, and I struggle with that a lot with my, even my older kids who it's like, you know, they are somewhat living in the world without a lot of oversight from me. And I always feel like, did I do the right things? Did I, have I done the right things? Am I protecting them enough? Am I protecting them too much? Mm -hmm. You know, so imagine your child being in China yep, <laughs> and, and being educated, you know, without you being around all the time. Right. And, you know, just you know, can you trust the people that they're staying with? And, um, 
know, cause he mentions here, you know, a couple things is one, you know, his son didn't speak Chinese. Yeah. And the school that he went to, the kids there didn't speak English. Right. So for a while, right. What do you do? Significant language barriers yeah. there. And so for a kid who's just trying to figure out how to get by there. Now, granted, you know, he wasn't on his own, but you know, I can't imagine trying to, you know, acclimate to a school that I can't speak the same language as the other kids. But again, that, you know, I wonder if that's just like, you know, they talk about like these immersive experiences where if you're going, if you're going to learn about a different culture, a different, in a different language, that the best way to do that uh, is just to get yourself immersed into it. And, and funny thing that I saw the other night on, on uh, TV, or maybe I was reading it on the internet <laughs> is that um, English non non-native English speakers, the majority of them that come to the country in the past, few decades say that there was like 23% of them that said they learned English from the TV show friends. Oh, wow. (laughs) I just thought that was an interesting anecdote for this section of the podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. So one other interesting kind of tidbit about, you know, the standards of living there is that, you know, they could only shower twice a week Mm. um, and the school didn't have heat until midwinter. So they had to wear coats, you know, to the school rooms. Of course, you know, it's a question of like, how cold does it get? But, um, it did make me think, John, are you familiar with, uh, what's called free range parenting, the free range parenting movement? No, no, not at all. I'm, oh. a, I'm familiar with free range chickens. <laughs> it's They're delicious. It's, yeah. <laughs> I don't think this is the, this is chickens though. Right. Yeah, and, and it's not raising kids to be eaten. Right. Uh, <laughs> thankfully. Yeah. Yeah, so we've got that clear. That's yes. not what this is. Not what this is. Okay. Um, so there's a lady I follow her on Twitter. Um, her name is, I'm going to butcher this. I'm sure. Uh, sorry for the chicken pun, but uh, butcher this. Her name is Leonore Skenazy. Um She actually has a website, freerangekids.com. And the idea behind this movement is that we have become so concerned with the dangers that children might encounter in life that we, you know, coop them up. Right. Oh and, yeah. Uh, we, prevent them from going out and just playing. Right. Um, a lot of parents maybe don't feel comfortable letting their kid go to the park by themselves. Cause well, you know what? They could get abducted. Part of the concern of this movement is that, you know, if you, uh, don't let kids go out and explore, it's really going to stunt their development and growth, learn how to navigate the world by themselves. Cause essentially they're just gonna have their parents telling them, okay, go do this, go do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. And the idea is look, to become fully responsible, mature adults, you've got to learn to make some of these decisions on your own. And so you do have to have some risk involved in your growing up so that you can navigate, learn how to navigate risk. Um, and so I think Ray really is kind of like the extreme version of free range parenting. <laughs> we operate the podcast on the value for value model. We are entirely listener supported. If you enjoy the podcast and find value in the information and entertainment you receive, you can donate to the podcast on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Dalio's principles and click support this podcast. There are even more ways to support the show. You can dazzle all of your friends with information learned on the show and share the show with them on social media. Also, you can review us on iTunes. It'd be awesome if you blog about it or even talked about our podcast on your very own podcast. And you can always direct your friends to our subreddit. 
at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash Dalio's principles. And now back to the show. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, today, a lot of people refer often refer to parenting today as like this helicopter parenting, like you were mentioning, where the, the parents are always on top of the kids the whole time. They don't have any time away from the parent. And I, I was telling you before we started recording that when I was a kid, you know, in the, in the summertime, our parents sort of pushed us out of the house in the morning and we, we all wanted to go out. We didn't have internet and devices, YouTube, you know, so we, that was where our entertainment was. We went out, hung out outside all day, went home when we were hungry or tired or hurt yep. <laughs> and, uh, or, or when the, uh, when the streetlights came on, which was the curfew. Yeah. So you don't, you don't see a lot of that today. And I guess, I mean, are there statistics like, do you think for like abductions and I'm yeah. sure there are, you have them. I know. Yeah. Right. Well, cause we looked it up. Before the same. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell them all our secrets. Uh, sorry. Um, the internet is a wonderful thing. Um, so yeah, we looked up, um, the uh, number of abductions per year in the U S and in particular, we were cur- curious about stranger abductions. You know, I think a lot of us are worried our kids are going to get snatched up. And, um, yeah, I remember I went to the park with my kid, uh, like a year ago. I mean, we've been to the park since then, but <laughs> about a year ago, uh, we were at the park and there was a lady who was talking to her daughter and said, now remember, you know, don't talk to anyone who's not me. You know, if someone tries to take you, you know, scream or, you know, she was giving her all these instructions just in going to the park, which, you know, I'm sure there's some of that, but it sounded like maybe she got this set of instructions probably every time she went to the park. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Right? So the kid's probably fearful of going to the park. Right. She's like, don't take me to the park. Um, <laughs> but, uh, Not the park again. Yeah. So, you know, it seems like there's a great chance that your kids are going to get abducted. So, uh, anyways, John and I, we looked it up and, in I believe 2017, there were only like 158 stranger abductions in all of the U.S. And of course, it's terrible that there's Absolutely. any. That there's any. But what are your chances of of having a child, your child, abducted when there's right. 158 right. a year? Yep. In a year. Yeah. As so, a matter of fact, the the by and large uh, number of them were people that knew them, like. Um, relatives or uh, an estranged spouse or, or, or parent or something like that, right? Right. Yeah, there are quite a few more abductions, but stranger abductions was just the 158. And so it's it's reasonable to have it as a concern, but is it so reasonable that, you know, you, you, you have to give your child these extreme... And of course, we're not offering you parenting advice here. <laughs> we're not telling you how to raise your children. We're just saying the numbers don't bear, don't bear it out that... At the very least, the numbers are... The point is the number is much smaller than I think most of us would have guessed. And it's good to have that data. Right. Because then you can use that in your decision making. Yes. Because I do think it is a concern like, okay, yeah, that's a very small number. But what about the parents of the 158 children? Right? Oh, it's terrible. Would they say, yeah, I wish I would have kept my kid at home instead of letting him go out? They probably would. And, right? and that, again, that's that decision that we're always, we're always making that decision. And Dalio makes a very brave decision. Um, here to to allow his child to have this experience of at 11 years old mm-hmm. being educated in a school in China, living with a family in China, and and you know he talks about a lot of the things that that how that fundamentally impacted that child as he grew up in life. So right, and it worked out for him. I can't remember now off the top of my head, but you know his son did go on to create some organization 
uh, some charitable, he did some charitable work. I think he talks about it in the book. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, son obviously was impacted and seemingly, you know, was glad for the experience he had. So in, in the end of this section, Dalio sort of leaves us with his own point to ponder. Micah, at this point, he says, be curious enough to want to understand how the people who see things differently from you came to see them that way. So it's a good point to ponder from Dalio here. As we get, as we, so we're moving on then to talk about, he starts to talk about his family. Uh, he's been talking about his son and his, his, uh, his education in China. And he starts to talk about his extended family as being all of the people that he works with all the time at, um, at Bridgewater. And he really, he really never, never sees them or thinks about them initially as employees. He really, because he grew this as a small company, you know, he's sort of seeing this as, as friendships that he's creating and adding to this extended family of his. And, and he talks about, um, I don't know if I, I put a quote down in our notes here, but you know, he wants to have those meaningful work and meaning he wants to have meaningful work and he wants to have meaningful relationships. And that's like hugely important to him just in terms of what he wants out of life. Yeah. And I just kind of want to touch on this again, because we, a while back in one of the earlier episodes, we talked about, you know, he said, you know, he wants meaningful relationships. And at the time he kind of characterized meaningful relationships as caring deeply about one another. And, you know, I wondered, well, is that all there was to it? Um, and so, so one thing I just wanted to point out is, you know, as we go through this book, you know, I'll raise some questions about things that uh, Ray says and uh, raise maybe some concerns about them. Uh, but, the reality is, you know, maybe it'll seem like it's an undeveloped theory of Ray's at the point at which we're reading in the book. And what we'll see is that a lot of the stuff he's going to flesh out in more detail later. Um, but I just want to raise questions as, you know, someone who's reading the book for the first time, right, who hasn't got to the end of the book yet, they might have some questions. And so I'm going to kind of raise questions in that manner. Um, but just know that just because I wonder whether Ray has fleshed something out doesn't mean that he hasn't. Um, but yeah, that's that's fair. That's good to know. Yeah. Um, but with, uh, meaningful relationships, you know, one of the concerns I had was he just said it was caring deeply one now, one caring deeply about one another. And I wondered if there was more to it than that. You know, I talked about how Aristotle talked about friendships based on pleasure, friendships based on usefulness, friendships based on, uh, the good of the other person, like that the person was good, a good person, virtuous. Um, and so interestingly here, you know, he kind of does give some more detail. Um, and he says that meaningful relationships requires being open and honest. And so one question is, well, is this just an additional requirement for Ray for some, for a relationship to be meaningful that, Oh yeah, it also has to be open and honest. Or is that part of what it means to care for someone else um, being open and honest and in fact, right, Ray goes on to say, if people weren't frank with one another, he says it would be unproductive and unethical. Mm. So I do think it's something for Ray that if you care deeply about someone, it requires that you be open and honest with them. And um, of course, there might be some questions about how frank to be with people and so on might depend on the person. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's a... You can you can be frank in a way that is just unproductive and, and you know, I'm, 
I'm overweight. And so if, if someone wants is, you know, wants to be frank with me, they can come up to me and say, Hey, you're fat. It's like, yeah, that's true. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Captain obvious. I, I appreciate that. You were very frank with me, uh, very open and honest, but it's like, what was, what good came out of that? And if you want to have a conversation with me about like what I might do to be more healthy. Okay. So that's different, right? Because you're being frank and you're, you're, you're addressing something that's a tough subject, but you're doing it in a way, in a way that's caring. Right. And so there's a, there's a bit of a distinction. Right. Yeah. Truth isn't always caring, right? Or truth said in a certain way or in a certain context might not always be caring. Right. Um, but I thought it was interesting um, in part that, you know, he talks about being open, honest, right? If you aren't frank, you're being unproductive and unethical, right? In part because, you know, a lot of times the reason why we hold back truth from people, like we don't tell them something that we know is because we're worried we're going to harm them. And so here it's the ideas that maybe look, Hey, what's good for someone is pleasure and what's bad is pain. And if I tell them this truth, that's going to cause them pain. Right. And so I'm not going to tell them, but that may not truly be caring for them. Right. Um, that could be unethical. You, you're, they, it could be end up really bad for them because they don't know. Right. Um, it also made me think there's a one account of being unethical or one account of ethics uh, which is called Kantianism, uh, after the philosopher who developed it, Immanuel Kant, um, K-A-N-T. And um, his roughly his idea is that you should always treat people as ends and not as means. And in particular, what's important about us is that we're rational. And so for Kant, he's going to say, look, you have to respect people's rationality and if you were to prioritize their feelings over their reason, you would be treating them unethically. Mm. Um, so anyways, just have food for thought. Absolutely. And I think that that I want to bridge, <clears throat> I want to bridge Micah from this section of the, of the chapter to the sort of the end of the chapter. And then we'll come back and fill in some of the stuff that we're skipping over here. But Ray, Ray uh, talks about this thing that he calls his intractable people problem and he, he starts off here in this part of the chapter talking about how he sees these people as an extended part of his family. And so I can imagine that as part of that, and because uh, Dalio talks in the book about radical transparency and having, wanting to always have that, that he's very, very transparent with, with these people. He sees them as family. He, he wants radical transparency. So he's putting it all out there. Uh, but the, some of the officers in the company at this point come to him at the end, at the end of this chapter and, and say to him, Hey, uh, we're having some bad results that are, that are being linked back to some of your behaviors and people don't understand. People don't understand the way you're behaving because they're not as close to you as, as these officers in the company happen to be because they've been with him for so long. And he calls this his the intractable people problem. And so one of the things that I think is really insightful at this point in this chapter in in this point in the chapter of the book is that he starts to realize, Hey, I need to make a lot of this stuff explicit and start writing it down and, and communicating this to the rest of the people in the company to say that here's what we actually mean by what radical transparency is. And we start to see Dalio constructing now, his work, the work principles that are part of this book. 
And he starts to write them down at this point, make them very explicit and share them with the people in the company. So I, I think that that bridges back to this viewing people as part of his extended family and, and what that means from a caring perspective and right. ethic, ethical treatment and that sort of thing. Yeah. So uh, let's, let's go back. And I think the last thing to talk about Micah in this chapter, I mean, there's, there's still a lot more to cover. Um, <clears throat> but the, the next important thing and the last thing I think to talk about is systematizing and learning from mistakes. Uh, so there was this one big mistake that Dalio talks about, and it's that he could have fired Ross. What did you think about that? I thought it was great. I mean, it just, you know, I think it was definitely an insight probably, you know, into how Ray works and how he views things. Um, but uh, Ross had the responsibility of investing some funds for a client and, I can't remember the details now, but it was a lot reason, of money. It was a lot of money. Right. And he makes a mistake and they lose a lot of money. Yep. He, <laughs> I know he failed to invest the money like he was supposed to. And so had he done the investments, the company would have made millions. Right. And he didn't. So effectively they lost millions. And you might think this would be a pretty good reason to fire someone, right? Oh, yeah. They've lost millions of dollars for a client. That would be my initial reaction. And yet he didn't fire Ross. Um, right. I think a lot of us might say that, you know, we should have fired him right on principle. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, dad joke. Yeah. I'm a dad. Uh, but, you know, Ray seemingly saw the larger picture here. Um, so a couple things he noted, he said, one, if he had fired Ross, this would have driven others to hide their mistakes. Um, uh. Right, because they know, yeah. hey, if uh, some error gets made public, I could be gone. Right, um, right, and I'm somebody who kind of suffers from a bit of imposter syndrome. Right, Feeling what is like, that? What's imposter syndrome? So you feel like you don't. You might say you're not like the rest of the people at your work. If you feel like you know you're not as capable or as smart, and you know you might think, well, man, if people really knew who I knew what my capabilities were. I probably wouldn't be working here, right? They would fire me. Gotcha, gotcha. And um, so you don't think that your your abilities are are up to up to where they should be for the job that you're doing, right? And I think part of it for me is you know, I didn't get a software education. I didn't get a, you know a college degree in software. You know that was something I did on my own. Sure. Um, later, and so you, it's easy to think, oh, other people who had the college education they must know a whole lot more than I do, um, but. Anyways, you know, it's easy to want to hide your mistakes because you worry that if people don't, if people find out your, they find out your mistakes, if they find out your errors, you might get fired. Um, And so he didn't want a culture like that where people were trying to hide their mistakes because, well, if you're hiding them, then you're not learning from them. And so Ray wanted a, a culture in which people could be upfront and honest about their mistakes. So then not only could they, but the company as a whole could learn from the mistake. Yeah, that's this seems like, and I it's it's obvious why it's in the book because it's such a fundamental um, point in time and and arc. It's a point in the arc of of overall arc of this of this true story is that there is this you know, they, he really made this decision to say no no we're not going to fire people we want everybody to learn from these mistakes. 
we want everybody to learn from these mistakes because everybody is going to make mistakes. What we need to figure out is why did the mistake happen? And as a group, how can we try to avoid that mistake from happening again? If we just keep, you know, burying it in the sand every time uh, or not addressing it, these mistakes will keep happening again and again. And so it seems like a really critical moment in time for the book and for the company at this point. Right. Yeah. And you know, interestingly, you know, Ray says that, you know, making a mistake isn't going to get you fired. Now, I mean, I'm sure there's might be some exceptions to that rule, but you know, you can imagine something really grave mistake, but what really caused problems is if you made a mistake and you didn't make people aware of it, that's what would get you in trouble. Cause then the company's not learning. You're not learning. Um, so that's def- definitely a different approach to mistakes. Yeah. So they, f- they formalize a method for capturing these mistakes in a log that they call the error log initially, I think, and then ultimately the issue log. And so this is uh, this becomes a thing where like Micah says, if they're, if they're not capturing the things, that's sort of the, the worst, cr- the worst sin that you can commit is, is not writing it down and saying that this thing happened. And so that's a, a very insightful, I think that's a very insightful moment for the company. So there's a lot, there's a lot that then they can do and use that information to learn from over time and get better. And, and I think like most people would, would agree, everybody's going to make a mistake What the, uh, the real crime, if you will, or the, the unforgivable thing is to repeatedly make a mistake without trying to improve yourself in a way to avoid that from happening again. Right. Well, that sort of wraps up this chapter. Uh, Micah, so we have our points to ponder and share with our listeners today. So what do you have? Yeah, so just a couple questions here. So one, what would it look like to systematize your work, mm-hmm. uh, right? Because that's something Ray's talked about doing. And it's hard for me to envision what that would look like as a software developer. Um, I mean, there's obviously some systemat- sy- systemat- systematization of it. There you go. That's a hard word. Oh, yeah. Um and yeah, you know, partly I wonder if you know maybe partly I'm thinking about the interaction between the various people who are creating the product, the yeah. developers, the designer, the uh, QAs, the people who test the software, and the client. Right? How do you systematize that? Is there a good way? How do you systematize people's interactions? Um, and yeah, I, th- another- I think about that a lot too. And 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 I don't I don't write software on a day to day basis, but I work in the same the same industry. And there's but I do different things and I've, I've tried to systematize some of the things that I do. And even the, even the things where I don't think that they're like systematizable, uh, I just try at it to see, you know, can I write down like, like what do I think about or what steps do I take and, and those sorts of things. And it's, it's helped me quite a bit. And let's see, uh, I guess maybe another question here is, do you hide your mistakes from others at work? And uh, so a follow-up to that is, would the error log or the issue log make you more comfortable with revealing them? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Consider, <laughs> point to ponder. I think a lot of it might depend on how other people respond to those errors, right? Definitely. What's your last one, Micah? Uh, last one. Uh, do you put yourself in situations that enable you to encounter people who think differently and or are from a different culture? Those are so going back to Ray's question earlier, yeah. right? Good. Those are those are great points to ponder for this episode and for the chapter of the book. We'll be back next time with chapter five. All right. 
Thanks, John. Thanks for listening. Let's keep the conversation going on our subreddit, Dalio's Principles at reddit.com. The subreddit is Dalio's Principles, all one word. Join us to interact with a community of like-minded individuals.